Welcome, everyone, uh, to the, another episode for the Society for Armenian Studies podcast. I'm Zovinar Derderian, and today I'm happy to say that I will be speaking with Richard Antaramian, who is an assistant professor of history at the University of Southern California. His book, Brokers of Faith, Brokers of Empire, Armenian, the Politics of Reform in the Ottoman Empire, just came out from the Stanford University Press. Uh, and we will talk about this book uh, in, in this podcast. Uh, in the year of 2020 and 2021 um, of the academic year, uh, Richard will be a Kingdon Fellow at the Institute for Humanities Research at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome, Richard, to our podcast. It's very nice to have you. Um, and uh, I'm really looking forward to talk to you about this book, especially since we've been talking about these subjects for over a decade almost. Um, it, your book really fills a big gap in the field of Armenian and especially in Ottoman studies. And I want to talk to you today about the topic of the book, its interventions and contributions to different fields, as well as about your journey of selecting and writing um, on Ottoman Armenian ecclesiastics of the mid 19th century and their engagement with the Ottoman government system. So you show in your book how um, Ottoman ecclesiastics, some of them very famous ones like Kharimian and Servanstians, um, were very much engaged in the reform process of the Ottoman Empire uh, uh, that we know as the Tanziman, which occurred between the 1840s and the late um, 1870s. And it is a reform that was pretty much aimed at restructuring the Ottoman Empire um, and to a certain extent um, centralizing the power of the Ottoman state throughout the empire. So I want you to first start talking to us about um, your journey in this project uh, and how you came to recognize this as ecclesiastics as part of the reform project uh, of the Ottoman Empire. Well, uh, firstly, uh, thank you for having me and thank you for that warm introduction. Um, and as you mentioned, these are issues we've been discussing probably for the better part of a decade at this juncture because we were both, of course, graduate students at the University of Michigan. Uh, and that is, of course, as is oftentimes the case with first books, uh, they begin life as a dissertation. So when I was a graduate student and I was uh, went to the University of Michigan, uh, Looking forward mostly to working with uh, Gira Libaridian and uh, Ronald Suni, and also, of course, Miguel Gocek. Uh, I went there originally with the intention of writing a dissertation on Armenian labor migration. Uh, Armenian labor migration had captured my attention for a variety of reasons, uh, in no small part due to the fact that my own great grandfather was a labor migrant who moved mm -hmm. from the Charsakmak area first to uh, Cilicia, um, picked cotton in the summertime which was typical uh, for many Armenians from the Harpeth area. Um, this is in the late 1890s or 1880s. This is in the 1880s uh, at that juncture. Mm -hmm. He himself mostly 1880s, uh, but then he eventually made his way to the United States in the early 1890s. Mm -hmm. um, and the story of labor migration was really, it remains under, under told, so I, I wish to write about that. Um, as, a, 
as a young graduate student, though, I, I felt I lacked the capacity to really delve into that project to find the, the sources that you need. It was a little bit cumbersome at that time. Um, I'm pretty sure I could do it now. But again, I was confronted with a number of obstacles. Um, that being said, if you start working on labor migration you will, of Armenians in the 19th century, you will inevitably be drawn to the person of Mukherjee Khrimian or Khrimian Hayrik, right. uh, who, of course, is well known as uh, this great hero of uh, Ottoman Armenian revival, um, considered by some to be this kind of godfather, uh, no pun intended, of Armenian nationalism, uh, and then, of course, lives the last decade and a half of his life as the Catholicos of all Armenians uh, in Ishmaelzin, which at that time was in the Russian Empire. Khrimian, uh, of course, you know, ran afoul of the of the Ottoman authorities, particularly in the final decade or so of his life in uh, Ottoman uh, public sphere. But, you know, in his writings, he writes extensively about, uh, mm. about late immigrants, uh, about the, uh, the trials and tribulations of the Bantus, etc. So that's what drew me to Khrimian originally. Uh, mm-hmm. But then you start digging into him, particularly his brief four-year reign as Patriarch of Constantinople from 1869 to 1873. And you see that he takes this so-called Armenian constitution, which is mm-hmm. introduced part of, this, you know, the second round of Tanzimat's uh, reforms. So the Tanzimat, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, 1839, 1840s yeah. to the 1870s or so. Uh, it's this large kind of grand imperial project that literally means, Tanzimat literally means the reordering the restructuring of the mm-hmm. empire. Uh, but ultimately, its aim, of course, is to centralize power in the state. Uh, mm-hmm. Centralize power in the state that is based in uh, the imperial capital of Istanbul. Right. Now, so, how did Khrimian play in this, in this project of centralization? Great. Uh, mm-hmm. So what became uh, interesting to me as I was working on him, uh, kind of the, the point mm-hmm. which I was able to connect, Khrimian to these larger projects of centralization was to look at the ways in which he engaged with this Armenian uh, constitution. Mm-hmm. And this Armenian constitution, if we read uh, kind of an older body of historical scholarship, says, oh, this is all about uh, uh, secularization. This is kind of the, the first steps towards nationalization of identity, etc. Um, and this has become a, a kind of a, an orthodoxy um, that's shared by both our scholars of Armenian studies and Ottoman studies, that these uh, 1856 reforms, again, the second round of Tanzimat, which uh, really uh, uh, tries to, we're told, integrate non-Muslims into the imperial body politic by mandating they uh, reorganize their own communities. Uh, it produces these new regulations, these new charters for mm-hmm. the that organize these communities, uh, the Armenian constitution being the most developed of these things. But mm-hmm. if you take a close look at it, you know, these people who say that it's about secularization, it's about nationalization, it becomes clear to me that they probably didn't even read the Constitution. If you read the Constitution, it legislates a diocese. It's all about regulating the rights, prerogatives, responsibilities of clergymen. It dictates how prelates are, are selected. Mm-hmm. It dictates uh, how prelacy creates prelacies where there had not been ones before uh, and subordinates them to a diocese which is now based in the in the uh, Patriarchate of Constantinople. So you have this massive ecclesiastical reorganization. And if you take a look at that and you then look at how the politics of the community play out, 
it almost always falls into questions of the ecclesiastics of the community, uh, ecclesiastical institutions, monasteries, mm-hmm. prelacies, churches. Uh, and it really comes down to clergymen right. who are being held up in ways bef- that they hadn't been before as representatives of the community, who, have, who are mandated by law to perform certain functions. Uh, in the past, a lot of that had existed in an ad hoc basis. Mm-hmm. This unifies practice across time and space. Right. Um, and and I want to jump in very quickly to ask about um, how the scholars that you, previous scholars, conceptualize secularization, right? Um, because I think a lot of uh, questions and criticism has been uh, directed towards the uh, question of what secularism means or has meant. Um, so can you quickly say like what the scholars who were perceiving this constitution as secularization conceived of it to be? Um, sure. To, to my mind, it's an argument that's very much couched in modernization theory. Mm-hmm. This uh, kind of guiding set of principles that has informed uh, much of writing, you know, scholarly writing on the Middle East uh, in the 20th century, which is to say uh, you look at some this kind of like multicultural, multi-confessional polity, such as the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and then you look at it where it gets to 1918, and suddenly you have it breaking up into all these ethno-national states. Mm-hmm. So it goes, to, it goes to think that you start off with this religious entity uh, where religion is a marker of difference, which both circumscribes political action of subject communities while also giving them certain rights and respond certain rights and certain privileges. Mm-hmm. Um, but then though, you know, in response to any number of uh, stimuli, be it uh, new economic relationships as a world systems theory uh, historian would want you to believe, uh, or whether it be internal class divisions within the Armenian mm-hmm. community, as uh, a large number of Armenian historians have written in both the um, kind of the early 20th century in the Soviet period and by people writing outside of uh, Soviet Armenia. Uh, the idea being that these uh, these uh, stimuli transform identities, mm-hmm. give people more kind of class-based identities, uh, and as a result, they reject the mm-hmm. old order, which had been kind of drawn up in these confessional terms. Right. Uh, so in the process of doing so, they reject the, they, they reject the religious, mm-hmm. they reject the religious, secularize in order to then become national, right? National and modern in this sense. Right. Uh, and of course, it, it would then make sense. Then you have these national communities, which are then just you know, champing at the bit to get out of the empire, uh, to create their own, you know, to fulfill the national prophecy and create this uh, new entity where the, the, as Benedict Anderson would say, where the, the cultural and the political are now congruent. Um, mm-hmm. Now, rushing to these conclusions is um, wrong-headed, in my opinion, mm-hmm. uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, so, for Ottoman scholars in particular, uh, I won't name names, um, but there was one uh, who says these 1856 reforms, which produced things such as the Armenian Constitution, inevitably lead the to... Ottoman reforms. Right, yeah. The Ottoman reforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, which again produced the Armenian constitution, produced the you know, similar charters for the uh, Jewish and uh, Greek, Orthodox, Greek Orthodox community, uh, inevitably lead to kind of national mobilization. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a problem. Uh, the first is that can we find 
one Ottoman Armenian who was writing about independence? The answer is no. Uh, can we find uh, a, a discrete body of literature produced by Ottoman Armenians that were saying, you know, we should have autonomy or we should have these things, it's really not until you kind of get to the ARF much later on, and even those ideas are mostly coming from Russian Armenians. They're not coming from Ottoman Armenians. If we look at what the Ottoman Armenians are doing, they're trying to figure out new ways. They're trying to chart new ways back into empire. They take this Ottoman empire as a given. Uh, mm -hmm. The nationalist something that's very, I don't say it's even far off in the distance, it doesn't even enter their own possibility. Mm -hmm. um, so they're very uh, kind of acclimated to uh, an Ottoman empire that they want to improve. Right. And the national uh, so, constitution was part of figuring out how to fit into the new Ottoman system. Uh, exactly. Because, uh, again, uh, so I guess maybe we're moving into maybe a different direction uh, now. So if we think about the ways in which uh, the religious communities are embedded in Ottoman governance, this is another kind of problem. Uh, which I think allows people to make this kind of quick connection from, you know, religious, secular, national. Mm -hmm. uh, it's to just kind of assume that the relationship between the state and the, that there's this kind of axis along which the state and the non-Muslim communities interact with one another. It's the lone axis, axis by which they interact mm -hmm. with one another. That elides a larger issue, which is to say, how is the Ottoman Empire organized in the first place? And mm -hmm. what does it mean then to centralize the empire? Um, and then how does religion, how do ecclesiastics play a role in that? Right. And if we take a look at what the constitution, when the constitution is legislating a diocese, what is it actually a response to mm -hmm. is a question to ask ourselves. And if we take a closer look, what we see is that uh, we see a number of things, uh, and we see how the Armenian community and the Armenian church are responsible for kind of fostering or forging this very complex uh, Ottoman imperial polity. So what we have is uh, monasteries in the ground, for example. Uh, so you have a monastery in the ground. Uh, what does a monastery do? Well, the monastery, before we have these new prelacies organized, has its own small diocese, its own vijan. Mm -hmm. um, so the number of villages, number of towns, or what have you, will be subordinate to its jurisdiction. Well, what does the monastery also do? The monastery trains priests. It ordains priests. Uh, well, what do those priests do then? Those priests then have some type of standing both before society and, uh, and the state uh, as community representatives. So we take these priests and we start to think, okay, what, what are their interests as a group? Mm -hmm. what, uh, what, what are their incentives for behaving in certain ways. Now, they have to represent their community in some cases, um, but what does that mean? So we take a, someone, a, a clergyman on the ground, uh, they're also going to have close relations because they are they enjoy this elevated position. They're going to enjoy close relations with local uh, Muslim landlords, local Muslim nobles, mm -hmm. uh, government officials. So when we talk about them representing the interests of their community, are they representing the interest of the villagers on the ground, the peasants on the ground, and what issues they have, or are they representing a different kind of interest? Right. And so you, you see um, this way of the, the ways priests or monasteries are functioning, and then how they change uh, the role of, of how the constitution 
intervenes in changing uh, the way the empire is going to be organized as um, um, being med mediated by the web of relations between different uh, ecclesiastics. Uh, I guess one of the questions I want to ask is how did you come to think of um, of looking how the different ecclesiastics were connected to each other because that is the networks that existed in in among the ecclesiastics is a major part of um, your argument uh, yeah can you comment on that so there were a, a couple of different things that I, I came across uh, so the first and most obvious one would be we'll return us to the example of Crimea so Krimian, um, as I said, you know, he's held up as this, as I said, this like, founding father of Armenian nationalism, um, and he's well known for his uh, when he was the prelate of Mush, for example, when he, when he earns this uh, nickname Heirik or, mm -hmm. uh, or uh, Papa, would I guess be a, a more appropriate translation. He, uh, you know, basically trudges through the snow to present uh, a list of complaints by the peasants of Mush to the to the governor. And this is how he, and then he, he gets results out of that. That's how he earns this, this nickname. Um, and then uh, he does you know, other things when he becomes patriarchal, trying to represent the needs, wants, and desires of uh, kind of uh, rural uh, Armenia. But his main antagonist was not a Turk, it was not a Kurd, it was not an Ottoman official. It was another priest by the name of Boros Melikia. Mm -hmm. um, Read about this guy Bogos Melikian. Uh, you know he's a you know, this war, but who's also from Vaughn, uh, as is Crimean. They it's described as like a thirty-year war, a forty-year war, depending on when you, you know, from whose ordination you start the, the periodization. And uh, Bogos was a guy who enjoyed, shall we say, the prerogatives associated with being a, a high-ranking Armenian clergyman. Uh, which sadly have that goes for today as well, at least in Armenia. Um, so he's accused of you know, beating people, uh, accused in one case, at least one case, of uh, raping a woman. Um, mm. He's accused of uh, taking bribes to force people into, into marriages. Um, but he also has uh, long-standing connections with um, members of the local Kurdish elite, um, namely members of the Hyderabad Confederation. The Hyderabad Confederation is not a monolith. It has its own internal politics. So he was allied most likely with certain members within that group who in turn mm. had deep connections with um, a cabal of sorts that had taken control of the, um, the governorship in Vaughan. So we have to ask then, you know, so Melikian uh, gets himself appointed as a vice prelate, prelate at different times. Uh, he holds all of this power. When we look at Khrimian's activity, he's really trying to displace these kinds of people. He mm -hmm. wants to remove other Armenians from power, but he understands it in a larger context, which is to say that if we as Armenians get these tools, if we get this constitution, if we get these uh, mechanisms, these instruments by which we can then take control of our own communities, we can then pull our institutions out of these webs of power. We can pull mm -hmm. them out of these networks. And instead of having uh, a prelacy that is now aligned with Kurdish groups or with mm -hmm. Turkmen groups or with, as would be the case in uh, Cilicia, for example, um, if we can not have them work with them, 
but instead work with the state, we can then become partners of the state. We will be mm -hmm. allied with the state in its project of centralization because the state likewise has an interest in kind of marginalizing these, uh, these Kurdish groups, marginalizing these Turkmen groups. Um, so the conflict between Kharimian and Melikian help you show Kharimian's positions vis-a-vis -vis the state. And, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then they see themselves as people who are at the forefront of the project of state centralization. Right? This, is where they, mm -hmm. this is where they really see themselves. Um, no, themselves as who else other than Kharimian, for example? Kremlin is the most kind of well-known example, uh, but mm -hmm. you do have uh, others kind of spread throughout the empire. Mercedes Vajabedian will become one of these people, um, mm -hmm. mostly you know, kind of based in Istanbul rather than doing work on the ground in the provinces. Uh, the, Dev, the Devgan's brothers. Um, who are from Van. Who are also from Van. Kremlin right. uh, has right. a number of his students. Uh, he returns to Van in the 1850s, opens a school. So mm -hmm. Grigory Zahavanyan, Karagin Servantsan. These are a lot of the guys. Then you also have And so you... Also, this makes me think of the fact that these people who were ecclesiastics who were involved in this uh, centralization pro project of the state were not necessarily from Istanbul. So that in some ways destabilizes, right, the center-periphery narrative, I think. is mm -hmm. to, to, to a certain extent, uh, yes, I, I mm -hmm. would agree. That, and it, it also, you know, there's... And maybe I think we should also explain what the center-periphery narrative is. So, so let's just say a few words about what the center-periphery mm -hmm. uh, narrative is. And so uh, the way that I typically like to frame it is that the Tanzimat, which we've been kind of discussing, is this thing in the background, this large imperial um, project. Uh, there are two kind of really significant planks to the, to the Tanzimat, in my opinion. Uh, mm -hmm. One is, as I, I mentioned, this uh, reorganization of non-Muslim communities in order to give them new pathways into uh, the imperial body politics. Uh, the other, then, is the centralization of the state, which is to say that uh, there's this kind of theme of Ottoman historiography, where we look at the imperial center uh, in Istanbul, and we see in this kind of a perpetual game of tug and war with actors at the edges of the empire, these people mm. who are in the peripheries, be they uh, notables, be they households, uh, be they whomever. And there's this game, uh, you could really call it a game, between the Ottomans in the center and everybody else that goes back to the founding of the empire uh, in the late 13th, early 14th century, uh, where the empire has to share sovereignty, it has to share resources, it has to share prerogatives um, with these different groups and kind of forge them into uh, a polity in which there are shared interests that kind of hold the whole thing together. Uh, and the story goes then that in the 18th century, uh, in the second half of the 18th century especially, those things kind of begin, those relationships begin to fall apart, the edge of the empire begin to fray, and the state now wants to kind of bring everyone back in the fold. Mm -hmm. This has been the narrative in Ottoman historiography. That's been yeah. uh, the main uh, kind of narrative. And mm -hmm. there's also been, coming back to the modernization paradigm, there had been this argument that uh, a lot of this is stoked by um, European uh, interventions. Mm -hmm. uh, the Europeans at different times bail out the Ottomans, uh, most notably after the Battle of Nijib when uh, the Ottoman state is nearly destroyed by uh, the Egyptians. Um, 
and then of course the Crimean War shortly thereafter. Each time we have these uh, European bailouts of the Ottoman household, yeah. you have uh, these new uh, reform programs. But over the last 20, 30 years, there's been a real push against that and has shown mm -hmm. that uh, a lot of the impetus for reform um, is, I would say, indigenous, but it comes from within the Ottoman. Mm -hmm. And where, you, where do you come in in this? Sure. Uh, this, is, yeah. this is one area where we can see that Armenians are contributing to the development of this body of law. Right. They mm -hmm. are making their contributions, they're making their efforts, uh, and they are not just you know, kind of internalizing reform, but uh, creating it. They are mm -hmm. making themselves agents of centralization. This isn't an arena in which the Tanzimat is pluralized, this is a place where it is made, uh, from which it originates. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing, though, is we have to think about more broadly about what it means, what centralization means. And this is where mm -hmm. I kind of balk at the idea of center and periphery. So we've been talking about modernization theory and these kind of endemic problems of Middle Eastern historiography. Mm -hmm. Well, center and periphery comes out of positive sociology as, as a concept. Um, and if we've now, interventions such as post-colonialism have all been really kind of taken positivism as their target, why do we indulge the old body of literature? Why do we indulge this uh, kind of dated uh, methodology by reproducing center periphery. Mm. And I'm therefore skeptical of this, not only because it's uh, conceptually fraught, but also because, from my view, the use of this center periphery binary or paradigm mm -hmm. is used to marginalize Muslim voices. Right? Mm -hmm. Because this, this, the history of 19th century Ottoman Imperium at this point becomes a story of the Muslim states in Istanbul mm -hmm. wrestling with Muslim notables at the edges, and we just can reduce the story to a series of negotiations between the two, and voila, there's no place for non-Muslims all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. If we think more, I guess, uh, if we think more creatively about what centralization means, we can resolve some of these tensions. I think. So it's mm -hmm. important to remember that the Ottoman state is not... You know, it's not an autonomous actor in that respect. So it's, again, this is an imperial mm -hmm. state. Uh, empires rule through difference. Uh, and the state is only one of many claimants on the empire's politics. Uh, it has to share sovereignty with the aforementioned non-Muslim communities, uh, with you know, whom it is tasked with a variety of responsibilities, uh, mostly for regulating their own internal affairs. But also, because you have shared that sovereignty with them, they can then use it to forge these alliances, which, as we discussed, these Armenian mm -hmm. clergymen do with Kurds, with Turkmen in Cilicia, with um, other groups throughout the empire. Um, and then, of course, we see similar things in the, in the Greek community. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have the Janissaries who are there. Right. Uh, we have, among the non-Muslims, we have the Fenarios who have their own households. Uh, we have the guilds who are in urban areas, marshal lots of power in some cases. Um, and we need to think about, so when we talk about centralization, we're not just talking about the expansion of the bureaucracy and the introduction of the normative order. We're talking about the state's efforts to withdraw or to, to, to strip these other claimants on imperial politics of mm -hmm. their ability to do so. Yeah. And I want to... So I, I want to intervene because when you mentioned all these communities, I uh, was reminded of the discussion on legal pluralism in your book. Uh, 
And this is a way that um, uh, the different communities in the Ottoman Empire, in, in a, a, a concept through which the different communities in the empire have been discussed in. But in your book, you say the way we've been perceiving um, legal pluralism in, in the Ottoman Empire is also problematic. Can you say how you reconceptualize this uh, system? Uh, sure. So this kind of uh, goes into, uh, I think, fits into the themes that uh, we've been discussing at this point quite mm -hmm. well. So there, one of the techniques, I guess you could say, that in my opinion has been used to misrepresent non-Muslim experiences is to um, assume that the that this that the communities having autonomy that the commu some type of autonomy mm -hmm. or having some type of ability to regulate their own affairs is you know emblematic of this you know, plural this, these plural aspects of Ottoman imperialism mm -hmm. look at how the non-muslim and so firstly when we talk about uh, legal pluralism it's not when we talk about various systems resting alongside one another, um, it's not a question of sanctioned bodies of law interacting with one another. It's a question mm -hmm. of, you know, I don't say common law, but you know, kind of like cultural norms, uh, you know, uh, certain uh, practices that are not necessarily uh, legislated anywhere that rest alongside an official kind of law, right? That's legal pluralism. So in how you, but in Ottoman studies, that's not necessarily how it's been right. conceptualized. That's not, how, yeah. right. that's, not, that's not how it's, that's not how it's discussed. So when we look mm -hmm. at the elaboration of more discrete bodies of law for regulation mm -hmm. of non-Muslim communities, such as with the Ottoman constitution, for example, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, also in addition to what I've been describing with respect to um, organizing a diocese also does create, uh, you know, I want to say body, you know, bodies of law or um, institutions for adjudicating issues as it comes to marriage, divorce, uh, wills, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, and creating the kind of like the, they create a the, judicial uh, council. council, right? <laughs> um, they create these. They they create these things. What they're doing is they're actually legislating them for the first time, and that kind of circumscribes uh, the space in which people can act. Mm -hmm. And are we are we to assume that these legal matters about marriage and divorce were done treated rather informally before the constitution? I guess this is where we're coming into your. <laughs> <laughs> My curiosities. <laughs> I should probably just turn the question uh, back to you. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at here is mm -hmm. uh, argue that we shouldn't necessarily pay attention to that per se. If mm -hmm. I mean, what is legally plural about Ottoman imperialism is that it provides space, that it allows certain practices to be uh, to exist alongside mm -hmm. uh, formal Ottoman imperial law. And it's the Tanzimat that comes in and says it's no longer the case. But it's ultimately also the Tanzimat that by creating, by promoting, and this even you know, we can back probably over a century, when the state at different junctures is promoting 
the ecclesiastical expansion of the patriarchates of Constantinople and the Greek Armenian cases uh, when it's creating uh, or institutionalizing the Hakam Basha for the first time in the Jewish mm -hmm. community. Um, it is, uh, it, you know, this is what creates the so-called Milet system. Mm -hmm. And it's being used as a tool of state centralization. That's kind of the point. And we see it by one drawing more kind of clear boundaries around the, the communities, but in so doing also makes them more legible before the states. Uh, but also, as we've been describing with Khremian uh, and these other priests on the ground, it encourages them to sever these links that they have with other groups that have produced local regimes of power. That's mm -hmm. the, the centralization in this case. We have legal centralization happening as well with the creation of the Millet system. So to call this legal pluralism strikes me as, uh, as, as highly problematic because this, this is mm. to suggest that you know, there's this kind of like multicultural environment in which people uh, are interacting with one another. That's really not the case. And we talk about the other thing that people point to when it comes to legal pluralism in the Ottoman Empire is to say, oh, isn't it great non-Muslims can select their form? Right. If you, you know, if you know, two Armenians have an issue between themselves, they can, and they can't resolve it between themselves, they can go to the priest and have the priest adjudicate it. Well, maybe one of them knows that the priest is a problem, so they're going to go to the Qadi instead, or they're going to go to the, the Sharia courts mm -hmm. instead. Well, is this pluralism or is this hierarchy? Right. Which points hierarchy, which then says Islam is the law of the land. These other things are are not tolerated, but they're part of the system. And as we promote the systematization of communal organization in the 18th, 19th centuries, it really kind of windows down uh, the, the realm of possibility for non-Muslims as a result. Mm -hmm. So can we maybe conclude about your book by saying that as Armenians became more and more part of the Ottoman state, they didn't necessarily gain greater equality within the empire? Yeah, I think that's a, a fair conclusion to draw. Um, and what we see mm -hmm. happening is, is uh, and what, what happens, and what I hope people take away from the book, is that these reform projects offer Armenians, you know, they make the promise to Armenians that they will have these pathways of inclusion. Right? If you, as an Armenian, go out there and you fight against Boros Melikian, you know, who, you know, who is responsible for helping prop up these different Kurdish groups. Or you go after uh, Khashidur Shiroyan in Akhtaman. Who has who is, been accused of murdering another Catholicos. Yeah. Exactly. So Khashidur Shiroyan is the last Catholicos in Akhtaman uh, mm -hmm. in 1895. And uh, he murders his predecessor. The reason he murders his predecessor is because the predecessor, Bedros Bilbil, who was murdered in 1864, signals a willingness to play by the rules of the army. Uh, this mm -hmm. is, of course, a threat not only to to uh, to Khashadur Shiroyan, but also to the family of Khan Mahmud, who, of course, was this major Kurdish uh, nobleman mm -hmm. uh, who had been uh, who had joined Bedir Khan Bey's rebellion in the 1840s against the Ottoman state. Right, so th they see that uh, this constitution is centralizing power and is a threat to both the Kurdish emirs and to the Armenian clergy, who have cozy relations with. With the emirs, so the in, is if you go after yeah. the Khachadushians, if you go after the, uh, the Ajabayans in uh, Silesia, if you go after Boros Melikian, if you go after Harutin Vehabedian, the prelate of Erzurum who graces the cover of the book, mm -hmm. uh, if you go after these people, 
And this is people like Kharimian going after them. Who are, yeah. them. You are helping unmake these local regimes of power that place Armenians in a subject position. Mm-hmm. In that you can take your institutions out of these local webs of power, out of these networks of power, you then uh, will be able to pair your institutions with the state. The problem, of course, and, and you know, this is why they can see themselves as the vanguards of state centralization. Uh, they see themselves as allies, as partners of the state. The problem, though, is that the state is going to be confronted with you. Um, you, know, you go into these areas, you provoke problems. We have a state that is weak, even though it now commands more of the polity sovereignty than it had in previous centuries, arguably. Um, but it is also cash-strapped. Um, this is kind of another element that we, we didn't discuss, and this is how the Armenian Emiras of Istanbul are connected with all of this. Um, mm-hmm. But if you, you have this cash-strapped state, which then needs suddenly finds itself confronted with new issues, well, if we've unmade the whole thing in the provinces, how do we remake it? Mm-hmm. If you want to introduce a normative order and have a bureaucracy that actually works, um, and is you know paired and allied with the Armenian reformers on the ground, it costs a lot of money. It, it costs a lot of capital, um, and it's just not a, a state of affairs that the central state can in fact introduce. So the state then turns back to terms of we kind of relies on negotiations with the people who actually have power in the provinces, which is mm-hmm. the people who have guns, which are not the Armenians. So uh, as the Armenians kind of help unmake these relationships at the edges of the empire. All they do is kind of help weaken the negotiating power of a large number of these Muslim notables of the empire, who then create new relationships with the imperial state, mm-hmm. from which the Armenians now um, eliminate. Right? Yeah. No and Armenians so, had strong relations also with these Muslim notables who settled some issues for them locally. Right, mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, when we look at these Muslim notables all over the empire, uh, mm-hmm. many of them, again, I don't want to misrepresent this history and pretend that you know, they're all seeing Kumbaya together. Of course. Yeah. It's this great multicultural environment. It's, a, it's imperial. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Non-Muslims are subject. People who are not part of the ruling elite, even if they're Muslim, you know, they have a second, they, they are not equals by any stretch of the imagination. But in most cases, the non-Muslim communities are respected. Right? They are, we use toleration, that's pr- probably a, a fair word to use. They are tolerated. Uh, they are recognized as legitimate parts of imperial society. They're legitimate parts of regional mm-hmm. local society. Their clergymen are to be respected, not to be disrespected. Their uh, the life, the property of peasants is supposed to be respected because ultimately this is producing the wealth that you know everyone will, from which everyone will share. Mm-hmm. Um, as we the the inadvertent effect of the Tanzimat is that it severs these connections. Mm-hmm. And suddenly these you know, kind of fail-safes that had been in place beforehand to safeguard uh, Armenian life and property beforehand no longer exist. So it, you know, it's as we see people such as Melikian being removed from power, mm-hmm. this point where you know, suddenly now the Armenians don't have any way of brokering these relationships in ways that they had previously. Right. So and the trouble begins where you end, mostly. Exactly. So when we get to Khrimian and the end of his life, and in, in mm. the end of his Ottoman public life in 1885, so he goes back uh, to Van as prelate um, 
and then he realized he's basically the orders comes down that he's supposed to be exiled to Jerusalem, and he realizes that the writing is on the wall. Uh, the writing is on the wall, so he tries to bring back Melikia and this guy against whom he has sparred for three decades at this point. Uh, he's <laughs> devoted. He's he survived uh, all sorts of intimidation, possible uh, attempts on his life fighting against Melikian. He brings him back in the hopes that Melikian can restore some of those relationships with the Hyderamlas, with the various... Uh, Kurdish Hyderamlas. tribal, yeah. Exactly. And mm. if he can restore those, at least the Armenians will have some type of protection. Right? This whole experiment, this pathway to full inclusion, um, I don't want to say citizenship because you know, they get the 1869 nationality law. It's not really citizenship as we understand it. But mm -hmm. you know, those, those types of ideas were in the air. And by the 1880s, it's clear that it's... Yeah. That it's and we have to remember uh, that this is also a time of famine uh, in, in the eastern regions that Kharimian yeah. is trying to help uh, find ways to uh, alleviate uh, the pains of people. Exactly. And he's not trying just to help Armenians. He's trying to mm -hmm. help everybody. Mm -hmm. There's a famine commission uh, that is established uh, for the Armenian community. Uh, there are donations coming from abroad. From we'll go through the records of the uh, of the uh, British consulates. You know, they're also trying to mobilize uh, aid efforts. Uh, mm -hmm. It's all supposed to be coming in through the Armenian Church uh, as the institution on the ground to, to you know, distribute resources. Uh, but Crimean is giving to Kurds just as much as he's giving to Armenians in the hope of mm -hmm. kind of creating this. Um, uh, this you know, kind of ecumenical, charitable uh, effort. Mm -hmm. um, and then you also have, you know, Krimian and uh, getting up on the stage with Muslim Muslim leaders, and you know, they're all praying for rain together, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. So we see these types of things. But again, that's all kind of collapsed. So Krimian, as his kind of last act as an Ottoman, mm -hmm. tries to bring back the old order against which he had devoted his life to fighting. Um, and it, it doesn't do much because while someone like Melikian may still have, uh, enjoy a kind of pomp in the eyes of uh, regional people, the relationships have changed, you know, the structures have shifted and been remade in ways that, that not even he has really kind of say anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's point forward in that we are, you know, kind of on a slippery, slippery slope to the massacres of the 1890s. Right. And that's where your book ends, uh, uh, and it's really, you've done a very great job of following the tracks of these various uh, clergymen in order to explain um, what role they played in the functioning and reorganization of the Ottoman state. And I really encourage our uh, readers to uh, check out and read your book, um, which is brief, but very dense. <laughs> um but uh, before we end, I wanted to uh, ask you what your next projects are. Um, what are you uh, thinking of uh, working on next? Uh, so I'm working on two new projects, both of which grow out of the original research done for this book project. Uh, so the first is to narrate the politicization of Islam in the last century or so of the Ottoman Empire but to narrate it from the vantage point of non-Muslim experience. So mm -hmm. I, I touched upon these, this kind of like reorganization of the empire that we see happen, and how when the Armenians drop out as brokers, right? the Armenians in the previous century established themselves as these intermediaries between 
provincial notables in the state, between uh, the provincial state and the, uh, the provincial governorships and uh, Kurdish or uh, Turkmen groups, um, as they disappear, right, as they are kind of marginalized and cease to play this role, new groups kind of emerge and take that, you know, fill that void. Mm-hmm. And groups we see are actually uh, Nakshabandi Sufi orders. Mm-hmm. I'm going, uh, the hope is, you know, pre-pandemic things right. will be a little bit difficult. Uh, that is the book I'd hope to write um, in this fellowship here at the University of Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one project I'm, I'm working on. And again, so there are, this, you know, ties into some of the things I talked about earlier with, you know, Janissaries, uh, with the Fenarios, uh, to kind of present a more kind of a holistic view of the Ottoman state that bring, as is, I hope, the case with the first book, really brings non-Muslim experiences and non-Muslim sources to the fore mm-hmm. to narrate Ottoman history and to fill in gaps and highlight processes, et cetera, that have been ignored or um, kind of glossed over to this point. Um, the second project deals with the Armenian diaspora. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it was in the course of writing the dissertation uh, that I realized, again, I, I started to see where the project I ultimately wrote, the project I ultimately completed, was tied to the project that I had wanted to write, which is, again, Labor Migrants. Labor Migrants in the mm-hmm. Immigration Center. And what I realized, and I uh, actually, you know, you provided me this document that really kind of mm-hmm. bring issues together for me. It was a letter from Providence, Rhode Island, written by Armenians uh-huh. there, uh, who had gone from the Ottoman Empire, and they were announcing their resignation from the Hunchakian party, mm-hmm. and that were and, th- and that they were throwing a lot in with the reorganized Hunchakian party. Uh, mm-hmm. So the Hunchaks obviously are this uh, Russian-Armenian uh, socialist revolutionary party that's formed in Geneva in 1887. Uh, they try to make headway in the Ottoman Empire. And what they do is they go to these groups, and the groups that they go to ultimately are a lot of people who are tied to Khrimian and uh, his allies in the provinces. And what we see happen is so we have these, you know, these socialist revolutionaries who are atheists uh, going in and trying to engage with an Ottoman culture. And it doesn't really work out all that well, uh, right? So you begin to see, though, that this Ottoman culture that Armenians had produced over the course of the Tanzimat period, this organizes their community, right? This dictates how their society, how they see their society, how they try to resolve issues, how they try to... Uh, build things. So they, you see them going out uh, into places like Providence, right? Mm-hmm. Even there, you're seeing that they're rejecting the, the kind of Russian uh, Armenian influence and falling back on what they know with the Ottoman Armenian experience. Mm-hmm. So this experience with Ottomanism, if you want to call it that, again, it's a, a term with which you know I, I take issue, right. uh, but this Ottoman Armenian culture goes abroad. And mm-hmm. we see that also then with um, you know, people, you know, labor migrants who are going abroad, uh, organizing their own compatriotic, what become the kind of the, um, the foreigners, the compatriotic societies, which are then sending money back to Ottoman Armenian institutions, such as the United Society, the mm-hmm. to build schools, right, which then have like their charters, et cetera, all as dictated by the constitution, et cetera. 
So the Constitution, this, again, this Ottoman culture goes abroad with them. And that really provides the institutional framework, in my view, for the modern Armenian diaspora. And then when we have mm -hmm. genocide happen, it's those groups who are already in place, which is now, by the 1915, become this really kind of complex melange of the church, the parties, which have now, you know, such as the, the ARF, which had Ottomanized itself to be successful, learning from the mistakes of the Hunchaks. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have this kind of like transnational Ottoman Armenian culture, this transnational Ottoman Armenian community, which is then remains in place after the genocide. Right? So the genocide happened, the center, if you will, of this transnational mm -hmm. community is removed, but its institutions, its structures remain largely in place. So, that's so you will basically be focusing on the early uh, diasporan communities a little bit before the genocide and after. Um, I'll deal with that. Uh, I'll mm. also be getting into how that Ottoman Armenian culture, however, right. is transformed by different things. So uh, mm -hmm. you know, we get into questions about you know citizenship, etc. So we have you know Armenians coming to the United States trying to establish themselves as white. Um, mm -hmm. So that plays issues, of course, uh, and those. Uh, so matters of race will also be as white, yeah, but those attempts to describe mm. themselves as white are also then tied very intimately with the effort to support the first Armenian Republic. So you mm -hmm. see our identity in the states already kind of becoming um, embroiled in these international politics, which of course will take on different meaning. Uh, after Sovietization, of course, during the Cold War. Uh, but then also in you know, Lebanon, we have the Armenian community there benefiting more or less from the subjugation of the indigenous Arab community, right, where the, the French bring them in mm. and give these Armenian citizens, give these Armenian citizenship in order to kind of uh, you know, cook the books when it comes to, uh, comes to numbers. So these, these things put, Armenia, put the Armenian community in a certain, place them on a certain path. Mm -hmm. uh, which, of course, is the kind of path where we're going to meet, meet people like Gottingen there. So I'll just, I guess. I see. I'll well, that's very exciting avenues that you're taking in your research and uh, we'll be waiting uh, for the end products uh, and looking forward to future podcasts with you. Thank you very much for joining us today. It was great to speak with you about uh, these your excellent book uh, and I hope everybody will uh, check it out as well. Thank you very much Richard. Thank you. Bye.